Let's see if I remember how it goes. Uh, hello, my name is AJ Lewis, and I'll be having a conversation with Tourmaline for the New York City Trends Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Program. Uh, this is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. Uh, and it is August 21st, 2019, and this is being recorded in Soho, Manhattan. Hi, Tourmaline. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you doing? Great. Excited to be here. Um, would you mind just uh, briefly introducing yourself for the reporter? Sure. Whatever you want to share. Um, my name is Tourmaline. I'm an artist, a filmmaker. Um, I live in New York City. And yeah. Um, you grew up in Boston, is that right? Yeah, so um, I moved to New York 17 years ago uh, in 2002 when I was 19. And before that, I had um, was living in Boston. Um, what was it, what part of Boston? In Roxbury. Um, and then in this place called the West End. Uh, what was growing up there like? Growing up in Boston, I think my recollection always makes it feel more miserable than it actually was, maybe. Um, but I found Boston to be, uh, like an incredibly racist, conservative, um, like New England city where um, also lots of like black social movements had um, you know contributed to the cultural life and the feel and the texture of the city so to me it was like a city kind of at war with itself and um, I didn't enjoy being there for the most part and I always kind of wanted to leave mm. Do you have any like uh, like specific like early memories of it being a city that was at war with itself that stuck with you? Yeah, um, you know, I went to like growing up. I went to like a black nationalist church um, that had like this beautiful portrait of Marcus Garvey on the side, and um, you know, it was one of like. Um, was my dad at the time was like the this outreach worker and the like reverend um person was um you know an activist and um someone who I like re met much later in life through like my activist work um and I remember it being like a hub for like people coming together who were homeless who this was like the early uh days of you know Boston's um, experiencing the HIV AIDS crisis, so people who were positive, um, people of color, um, but as soon as we kind of like left the church, um, you know, it was not not that way at all. Mm. Was uh, my ask what denomination the church was? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, it's hard to say. I'm I'm not sure. It was like. Um, it was not, maybe it was like Protestant, maybe like the person was Episcopalian. I'm actually not sure. Like, I, I actually have no idea. Was uh, black nationalism part of your early life in other ways, too? Yeah, it definitely was. I um, went to this like program that was uh, like a black nationalist, um, like young. Um, people's program during the week and then in, in summer they had like a um, during the week it was like after school and during the summer it was every day during the day 
um, and you would like start the day reciting the quanta principles and uh, you would learn a lot of like kind of like straight black history um, that wasn't taught in school um, and it had a real profound impact on me because um, part of it was about like the principles were about like setting you up to go out and be um, amidst like a white um, culture, you know, and like white communities and go to school with white people, um, but not lose your like groundedness in um, like the black community. And so um, it was really interesting to me to like be at like a white school and then like know what I was not being taught and like argue with my teachers about things that I had like learned in after school or during the summer um, before the school started. And um, then kind of later when I was in high school, starting, in, yeah, when I started high school, I like started a, um, a class that my high school still teaches on like black history. Um, and yeah, it was kind of, a lot of that, like, um, finding myself, um, kind of deeply alienated and, um, being grounded through, like, history and, um, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, did you have, uh, like, family or friends that were sources of support, um, around you negotiating, like, these different contexts, school and, uh... I don't, you know, um, my, like, family was all negotiating it at different moments, but I don't know if at the time we really had a language to talk about it. Um, we, yeah, I don't think that we were, like, I wish we had a, more of a language in order to support each other, but I think at the time, uh, I know my experience wasn't, like, um, I probably wasn't being very supportive and I like wasn't feeling really supported um I just felt like really isolated I think mm -hmm. yeah um can you tell me a little bit about your parents yeah um so my mom grew up in Boston um and was a community organizer and a union organizer and also a painter um and my dad grew up in Memphis and was also like a community organizer and union organizer. And they met um, in this group they helped start called ACORN in, in Detroit, Michigan, where my dad's uncle um, lived. And they lived in Michigan together for a while and then for some reason moved to Boston. Um, and I was born like shortly after that. Mm. Yeah. Um, and did their, since they had lives as, as political organizers, that yeah. end up influencing your own work? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so like my dad in Memphis was part of this group that was kind of, um, it was called the Invaders, and it was in some ways modeled after the Black Panther Party. And um, I remember. May, may I ask when, yeah. like around when uh, he was involved with that? Yeah, so he was involved. Um, with the invaders in the like mid to late 60s um, and he went to Vietnam he did like three tours in Vietnam starting when he was 17 
and he was born in 1950. So, and he was kind of back and forth in the invaders during those times. Um, and I remember he was there in 1968 when uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis and um, was doing like a lot of organizing around that and like, um, and at the time there was a sanitation strike in Memphis and um, kind of my whole family was involved in supporting that. I'm sorry, maybe you just said this, but how did your parents end up in Boston again? I have no idea. I, I really, I just, I, you know, my mom's like, oh, yeah, your dad always wanted to go to Boston. And I was like, really? Like, I, I, I don't believe it. Um, I know he had, like, a challenging relationship with the South and wanting to leave it and feeling really, um, you know, his experience as, like, a black person in the South was, um, was really challenging. But I also know then he felt really isolated and Boston um, like not having any family and he spent a lot of time like when I was growing up at the VA and so <clears throat> he like built a lot of community kind of out of the VA hospital I feel like it's kind of like how I like to go and I think that is imprinted me on me you know it's like how I like to like go to Callan Lord and like catch up with people mm -hmm. and I've been going there for um, maybe like 14 years or something like that and so I just like you know it's kind of like seeing people and having community and um, I think that to me you know it's like the community that you create like in the in the institution um, and that being like part of just your life yeah. Like, what did you, like, what were you, how would you describe what you were like as a, like, when you were growing up? Yeah. Um, I was, I think I was, like, really unruly. Um, I was, like, also really miserable. And I think I, like, told a lot of jokes. And it was, like, really funny. And I, I remember, like, um, having lived in New York for a little while and being like, oh, like, and parts of that coming back to me and then realizing like how pushed down I had become um, because I think that I was like, um, yeah, I think I was like, you know, the family comedian or like the person, the very theatrical, you know, like all these kind of, all these kinds of things. Are you the youngest of your siblings? Yeah, yeah, I'm the youngest of the siblings I grew up with. Yeah. Um, uh, I want to um, ask you about New York City, but uh, I'm curious if there's like anything about like early life that you want to mark before we yeah. move on. Yeah, I mean, I think, so when I, growing up in Boston, I think the, you know, it's like, um, I found like queerness and transness in the like immediate worlds around me mm. so I remember like I lived so I grew up in Roxbury and then um, it was like section 8 housing and my family was evicted from because of like some strange gender rule where like if you were assigned um, male you couldn't be sharing a bedroom with 
um, someone who was assigned female after like a certain period of time. And so there was three of us, uh, like me and my two siblings, and my mom, we all lived together in a two bedroom apartment that we then had to leave um, because of like weird section eight laws of like, um, you know, that I'm just like, wow, this is like the gender binary being like reproduced um, through housing. And so we moved to this like basement apartment in this neighborhood um, called Fenway. Um, and we lived there for maybe like nine months or something like that. And it was pretty miserable. Uh, it was like no sunlight, basement, in the alley, um, next to a bar. So there was just like, it was, it was just like not really that fun. but. We lived next to, like, definitely, looking back, like, um, a lot of, like, trans people were just, like, on the corner on the street hustling, and I remember, like, having relationships with them, like, um, just, like, hanging out and talking to them, and it was, like, our apartment, then an alleyway, then, um, I think something like Kenny's Pizza and a laundromat, um, or maybe it was like Uncle Lou's Pizza, some kind of pizza place and then a laundromat with like a little arcade. And so I remember and across the street from that was like a video store where like you'd go rent VHSs that were like, you know, overly priced. And then there was like a park where um, I think people were like hustling and like doing sex work. And so I remember like hanging out on the sidewalk and playing and just like meeting uh, older trans women and my mom being like really curious about that. And then I remember like um, my mom said my name. I think I got in like an argument with someone who like was a trans woman and like my mom was like telling me to come on and like said my name and that person was like yeah go home or something like that like it was really funny looking back and then so my do mom, you remember what you were arguing about i have no idea i have no idea maybe like i was like riding my bike and they were annoyed about like how much space i was taking up on the sidewalk some some kind of thing you know like some kind of classic you know being in the neighborhood argument and i couldn't have been um I think I was nine at the time, something like that. And, or what happened? We maybe we were, it was going into the video store or something. Some kind of like strange thing happened. And, um, but just like classic neighborhood dynamics. And then my mom got home and was like, how does that person know your name? You know, it was like really interesting. That was, I think that was that first time that I was like, oh, like what, there's something, there's something going on here that I am not aware of, you know, and I, and I think it's about transness and I think it's about sex work, but I didn't have a language to put it into. And I think that was my first introduction to um, both of those things at the, at the same time. And um, then what happened? And then they would just talk to me all the time and I would talk to them and it would be really it's just, it's so funny looking back, you know, and I was like, oh, like, these relationships were just part of the fabric of the community, you know, it wasn't, it was just, like, people, everyday people kind of just, like, being together, you know, and having to go about their lives or whatever, and then what happened, and then at the same time, 
I was really close with this person, um, David Farwell, who um, was positive, and we were like friends, and he was in his like 30s, I think, but we were, and I was 10 or 9, and it was like an actual friendship. Um, and my dad was like really freaked out by the closeness of our relationship, and my mom used to talk to me about it all the time. Um, and like check in and like well, what's going on is everything you know okay and um, but he did this theater group at um, at church and so and like everyone wanted to be part of his plays and um, I remember that was like my like first experience of having like a really close relationship with another queer person and um I just kind of like look back and I'm like oh wow like this is a different church so we left that church when my parents split up when we went to this like um Catholic church called St. Cecilia's that was like full of queer people um and including David and he lived in the church and he like we did theater and I remember like um, kind of never getting the part that I wanted and always being like disappointed that I went to someone else, you know, like um, my sibling or just like whoever. And um, we just had the relationship like really had a profound effect on me. And it was at um, a time when my dad was, was disabled and um, was frequently at um, Mass Mental, which was like a psych hospital um, that was like right kind of down the street from where we were. We were like living in kind of the shadow of like a lot of hospitals um, because uh, of like my family um, having a lot of disabled people in it and like needing to get care from the hospitals. And so my dad was really kind of upset about my proximity to David and I was kind of confused and just trying to like make sense of the whole world and um, then he died I think in 1995 and that just had like a deep or it could have been 93 it had like just a deep impact on me Um, and um, and it's just uh, like a thing that, you know, I kind of, um, you know, it was like a friend slash a like, um, like, you know, mentor slash like just someone who really like turned the lights on um, in any room that he like walked into and he was like such a theater queen and um you know, that I think really defined my early, early life in Boston. Um, and then, yeah, then those that relationship was gone and no one I like kind of came back to fill that role of like connecting me to like a broader queer um, or trans community. And then we left Fenway and I ne- never saw the people um, who were my neighbors, mm. like, again. Um, do, do you remember any of the trans women's names who were in your neighborhood? No. Mm. No. Yeah. 
I mean, I probably could think, you know, after the interview, I probably will. Um, yeah. It was wild, you know, looking back. It was like a really kind of interesting block. And um, I remember also my mom got really freaked out because, you know, at the time I was wearing like a lot of quote unquote like girls clothing. And my school like started to comment on it, and but they would frame it as like, oh, that's an interesting, like, sweater, or those are interesting, like, you know, um, that it just they would just like have a little comments, you know, all the time, and then I remember like walking into church, and my mom being really freaked out about how I was walking. And me just being like totally confused, and um, I think I was like you know swishing my hips back and forth or something like that. But she was really freaked out, and she was like, "You can't walk that way into church." And I remember that was like an early form of like gender correction, you know, and like gender policing, and being like really stunned. Do you remember how it felt when she said that? I was just like totally ashamed. I was so caught off guard and really ashamed and also deeply confused, you know, and like I, I remember trying to figure out like how am I walking? It, like what about my walking is like different from how everyone else is walking, you know? And I think I was just like walking like the people who I was hanging out with were walking, you know, but for whatever reason, like it wasn't... Um, have you know she wanted me to walk or like society wanted me to walk it was like a, I, I think it was very I placed it as like one of those moments where I'm like oh I, I was really at odds with um expectations around like gender and like mm. moving through the world that's that's like so hard as I in my experience with like kids is like we, like we tend to be like so acutely aware of the yeah. many complex messages that we get all yeah, the time totally. but we don't have the sort of you right. know repertoire yet to actually like right yeah, you know, like think through what what we're basically what we're being told. Right, you know? exactly. Um, yeah. And usually the, the effect is just that it feels bad. Yeah, it just felt bad. Yeah. I remember it just feeling bad and me being like really confused about it. How yeah. did you know that your church was full of queer people? Um, my family just kind of talked about it. Yeah, my mom talked about it, and um, and looking back, I'm just like, oh yeah, really. <laughs> How did, uh, how did you end up being uh, becoming friends with David? I think my mom, like, was... Um, my mom was really close with David. And maybe didn't know that he was queer. And then I remember um, my mom, like, sitting us down and explaining that, like, David was gay. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and... Um, you know, it just, like, didn't really have that much of an impact on me. And then, um, I don't know what happened. We, he just started doing, like, taking, you know, like, being the babysitter person, like, childcare person. And then I would do his, like, theater groups. And then, I don't know, we would, like, 
my mom would go away for whatever reason and he would stay with us and we would have like talk on the phone I don't know stuff like that yeah uh, and your parents were concerned about the relationship because they were concerned that sex was involved yeah I think that they were concerned sex was involved but there was no sex involved mm-hmm. yeah um and you, uh, let's see, so you uh, came to New York City in 2001, is that correct? 2002. Is that true? Yeah. We both came here at the same time, apparently, yeah. I don't know when I arrived. <laughs> <laughs> is it? No, you're right, it's 2002. Uh, I came in August of 2002, so it's like exactly 17 years. Uh, why did you want to come to New York? You know, like I, you know, so... Um, just like everything was about New York when I wasn't in New York. It's like all the TV shows were there about New York, all the music was about New York. And then I remember coming for the first time in 1998 and or seven, and I was just like, holy shit, like everything is huge. The movie theaters are huge, the like subways are huge, the buildings are huge, the billboards are huge. And I just like, I was. It was, like, deep stimulation, you know, and it felt amazing. It was like, oh, my God, like, this exists. Like, all of the people kind of out and about. Um, I don't know. I was just, like, I remember um, just, like, looking up at the buildings and and just being so in awe of everything. Like, it, like going and looking up at the... You know, World Trade Center and just being like so like in disbelief and um, I don't know it's just totally wild to me that like something could be so big and I didn't have words for it but I just like really wanted to be here and then I remember also yeah there was like in this is like when um, you know it's like I was listening to a lot of Little Kim um, and Biggie and Wu-Tang and just like all the music was just all 100% New York City that I was listening to and um, you know I was watching some TV um, like um, and MTV was like all it was filmed in New York City and Times Square Carson Daly I was just like I was just like wow what is this place huge like you know whatever it just felt amazing to uh, to consume the image of New York and so yeah I was just like I need to I also was like you know um Boston in the wintertime is incredibly depressing I mean just year-round it feels depressing but uh maybe it doesn't anymore but <laughs> for who, anyone else who's there but um but in the wintertime I had a really hard time with it and so I knew that I wanted to like be in a much bigger city and that like I really wanted like to be around other people and have things to do when it was like really cold and um and so um yeah just like New York was like really where I had wanted to go for so long mm-hmm. yeah. and you came to Columbia University is that yeah. right um what was it like when you first moved here to go to college like what what did it feel like landing at Columbia um, so, before, um, school started, I was, um, part of this program 
where it was like people who wanted to do like community-based work. I forget what it's called now. Um, but we like arrived early, uh, maybe like a couple weeks early or something like that. And I was um, part of a group that like did work at Harlem Hospital and it was like my introduction to Harlem Hospital. So we were like going there every day um, and just like learning about um, just, you know, all of the like histories of Harlem and that, you know, to me was like one of the reasons why I was moving to New York was to like be in Harlem and spend time in Harlem. And I had just like grown up like hearing about it my whole life. And um, the Harlem Globetrotters, like Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor, Harlem Knights, um, you know, like Malcolm X in Harlem. I just like my whole Harlem was like such a cultural reference point for me. And um, I remember it feeling like such a big deal that I was like in Harlem, walking the streets of Harlem, going to Harlem Hospital, um, and also kind of the intense um, history between like a place like Columbia and its immediate surroundings of Harlem, and like all of the violence that that comes with it, and like the gentrification and um, the like, you know, um, the tensions, and so. I remember just being like acutely aware and sensitive to that and like really just so hungry to be part of the community there and like learn more. Um, and also being like really alienated by a lot of people I went to school with. Um, just like being so, yeah, I was just like, why? kind of confused people you went to school with uh, like at Columbia. at Columbia yeah and um, uh, because I think a lot of people like at the time you know I was just like no one the, no one um, I just think a lot of people like were not like trying to be part of the world around Columbia you know and people were just like we're in New York and it exists from like for like four blocks around us and this is like really New York and um yeah it was kind of wild and then what happened um then I like got quickly involved in like activist work um yeah I don't know I think that I was like confused about how I would like be part of New York City and be a student at the same time, and I was confused about that for a while. Um, yeah. What kind of activist work did you get involved in? Yeah, so um, this was during the lead up to the um, Iraq War, and so there was like a lot of um, like demonstrations that I was going to, and. Um, marches and I remember like meeting some students who came to do this speak out in Boston during my the summer before I moved to New York and they were Columbia students who were organizing against the um, Iraq war and um, and they were like getting me so excited about like activism like at Columbia and so that was part of it and also kind of like um, 
Columbia was expanding into Harlem. And um, so that was part of it. And that was like, um, you know, like early activism and then activism around like ethnic studies, um, which started at Columbia because of like the hunger strikes. And, um, you know, was, hunger strikes were in what? Nine, ninety six. Yeah. Yeah. Or ninety eight. Yeah. Yeah. One of those. Um, and then, you know, it was kind of interesting because I was like, I was acutely aware that some parts of my identity and like experience were alive and um, like you know, being fed and also other parts were like deeply pushed down and um, then I remember going with you to the first trans day of action and I was like, and I think that was after we went to Chris for Economic Justice and I met um, Jay Tool and um, uh, Joseph Philippus and um, you know like my whole parts of myself that I had just like um, like felt you know that for whatever reason I had to like really push down in order to move through the world um, were like all of a sudden like hey like remember us like we're um, like what's going on you know what do you mean by parts you push down just like um, what do I mean I think that like um, the growing up in a place like Boston and um, leaving uh, like a community where like trans people were just a part of the everyday fabric of of the you know the street of the neighborhood and um, going to a place where trans people weren't and then. Um, having David die and losing a kind of really close relationship, I think I just like folded into myself. And um, I got really serious and um, like I wasn't, you know, finding and connecting with other queer and trans people. And I wasn't like expressing uh, queerness or transness like I felt really ashamed you know like I felt this moment of like being really policed and like pushed down by family and just like schools around me um, and then you know just like carrying that for a long time and then kind of folding into myself and then being like oh there are these parts of myself that um, I was like made to feel ashamed uh, ashamed about that are actually like really um, you know have so much to offer you know and so I needed community in order to um, like feel empowered enough to uh, like experience them, express them, inhabit them in a way that wasn't like outside my bedroom or on the internet or um, you know that felt like risk taking. Mm-hmm. 
And at least when you're like uh, like campus life uptown, you were yeah. involved mainly in organizing around the war and yeah. uh, gentrification. Gentrification, the war, gentrification, ethnic studies. Ethnic studies. Yeah. Um, so you, you weren't really involved in like organizing around LGBT issues. Not until campus. like the last two, I would say not until like the last two years. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the first two years I wasn't and then the second two years I was. Mm-hmm. Did yeah. you have like a queer and trans people or community in your life before going to QEJ? Yeah, um, I mean, uh, the very like I think my first friend at um, Columbia was trans, and it was you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> uh, um, and then. We, we lived on the same floor. Yeah, we lived on the same floor. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And then, I think, you know, it's like one of those things where it's like, when you're surrounding yourself with queer and trans people, um, and then, yeah, like, for a reason. Yeah. And there were a lot of queer people involved with, like, ethnic studies and gentrification yeah. organizing. I think yeah. you, like, promptly, like, set to setting me up with my first girlfriend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you majored in uh, comparative ethnic studies. Yeah. Did you, t- did you, why did you uh, choose to do that? Yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> I think, you know, it's just, it was about the, like, socialness and the social life around the um um around what I was studying. So I majored in comparative ethnic studies and I concentrated in um African American studies and I it was just about like um I remember taking this class Jazz and the Political Imagination by Robin D. G. Kelly and then taking this other um like AFAM class and then taking another like comparative ethnic studies class and then being like, oh, this is so interesting. Like um, people in one class are in the other and like vice versa. And these are also the same people who are um, in like my activist groups. And then it kind of clicking on, like it clicking uh, that this was like, we were building community, you know, and that was like part of what we were doing, which was different than maybe like, um, if we if I was like to study uh, physics or math or engineering, um, to me it felt like we were intentionally building a kind of like radical community with each other, um, and with an intention of like getting deeper with ourselves and getting deeper with each other, um, yeah. And Robin Kelly was a influential yeah. presence in your life. In yeah, he was a right? very influential presence in my life, and um, I worked for him for uh, a couple years and um, I was his research assistant and um, I took like every class that he had and read um, his work and then I remember um, you know like this moment where um, for my like senior thesis or whatever I was writing about because by the time that I was like at the end of Columbia I was, a, um, I was like part of Fierce um, and uh, like doing work with QEJ and I remember um, writing about the fight over like privatization of the peers and the curfews on 
um, Christopher Street and um, and like policing of like young queer and trans people of color and um, kind of just like the big fights that were going on around it at the time and um, Can you describe how you got involved with Queers for Economic Justice and what that was like? Yeah, um, I mean, you took me to their <laughs> office. <laughs> I think you... I'm trying to remember why I did that. Yeah, I think you were, like, <laughs> really wanting to um, connect me to community and maybe consciously or not, like, uh, sense that I was, like, really needing it. And um, so I remember we took the train down to uh, 16 West 32nd Street and um, I started doing, at the time, so years later I worked for Chris Economic Justice, um, but at the time I was like a volunteer, and I was doing um, volunteer support groups in the New York City shelter system. And um, then I was an intern there um, in the Welfare Warrior Program, which was um, about like organizing with people who were uh, either currently or formally experiencing, um, you know, like poverty. And, um, you know, as someone who grew up in poverty and um, was at, you know, moments like homeless and, uh, you know, like on welfare and the whole whatever, it felt like really wonderful to be. Um, like connecting with people who had similar experiences and um, that was definitely like a real turning point in my life. I remember like um, in like 2006 I was like I'm actually like uh, gonna start going by like they them pronouns and um, and like seeing other it was like it was similar to how it was just building community and how r- realizing like how much is possible when you have community like how much like risk taking is possible um, learning like things that you didn't um, know like the um, history of like queer and trans life in, in New York City um, and um, like being really fed by that um, and like meeting people who would like um, just help me along my journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who else was involved in Welfare Warriors? Yeah, um, some people who aren't alive anymore. Um, there was um, this person, Kagendo, who is an amazing filmmaker. Um, uh, there's some people who are uh, who passed away last winter um, people who are alive uh, Egypt Labasia who I worked with and um, who was later in Happy Birthday Marsha and um, I did a film with called The Atlantic is Sea of Bones Egypt was in uh, later on in, in The Welfare Warriors um, uh, there's just like so many I, I worked um, you know, I was interning in Welfare Warriors um, for this person, Ola, who um, is, you know, an amazing activist and I just, like, learned so much from and uh, continues to organize. Um, 
um, you know, there's just like a ton of really, um, really amazing people. Um, yeah, and we worked out of like a very tiny office and um, the um, group was new. And so that summer we were building towards doing a um like a speak out about um experiences of being queer transgender conforming uh like lgbtqia plus um non-binary like people who had experienced poverty or living in poverty like many people who are in the shelter system and we did it in um august of 2006 at the lgbt center and um i remember there was like performances ignacio rivera emceed it um um this group switch and play performed there was like a big speak out um and I remember feeling like really accomplished that I had helped like organize something that was so powerful and um, that like, yeah, I just felt really proud of myself um, and like proud of my community and it was so successful. And I felt, I don't know, just was really, uh, had a huge impact on my, on my life. Um, but then the job ended and I, the I, internship. Yeah, the internship. Okay. And so I was, um, um, then I was like without a job for a while and I was really stressed out. And um, then I started working for uh, Critical Resistance, which was and continues to be an organization um, that seeks to abolish the prison industrial complex. Uh, in the U.S. and um, I remember just like parts of the kind of amazing radical community in like the work that I was doing at Chris for Economic Justice was like um, held within um, like the prison abolitionist movement, and parts were definitely not. And um, but that's through that work is how I met uh, Miss Major. And, um, and I remember going to this, um, gathering that, um, she organized and then I helped with a little bit, uh, called Transforming Justice. And that was in the, um, summer of 2000, in the fall of 2007. So like a year after, uh, Chris for Economic Justice, um, forum. And, um, and what happened? It was really cool. It was, um, you know, it was like mostly uh, trans women of color who had just gotten out of prison. And, um, and yeah, it was like um, people doing workshops and um, there's like a little uh, documentary um, film that uh, exists about it um, online called Transforming Justice and um, 
it was just kind of breaking down the role that policing and prisons play in our communities um, and kind of starting organizing around it. It was a totally different era, you know. It was, um, it feels like many kind of lifetimes ago. But um, then I went back to working at Course for Economic Justice. I remember um, Ola had left and um, then I became the like welfare warriors um, like organizer. And, and I ask, yeah. did, were there um, like other trans people involved in the, like the prison abolition organizing you were doing at the time? Or? Yeah, so like um, definitely, I mean, Ms., like so Miss Major was, but kind of up until this gathering that we had at 2008 in the Bay called Code of Resistance 10, mm-hmm. it was like a 10 year anniversary gathering, there was just a lot of contention that was like similar to the like, um, Robin Kelly um, thing about like queerness and transness, transness like not being part of like your material condition um, and not understanding how like um, queer and trans people um, and non-binary people are at like um, an increased risk of uh, policing and how like uh, prisons and jails like reproduce the um, gender binary and um, you know like target um, like queer and trans life and people um, so it was like it was pretty it felt very contentious mm-hmm. you know like there were a lot of queer and trans people but uh, there wasn't like space to really necessarily to talk about how um, like our community was particularly vulnerable to state violence like that to me felt like something we built um, together like um, and organized did a lot of internal organizing around and had to um, and I remember like Miss Major was going to do a, like um, a direct action at CR 10 um, because of the like transphobia that existed in in the spaces and in the movement um, and yeah, yeah. Did she do it? She didn't. She did a like a beautiful um, speech, but um, she was gonna like do a sit in on stage, um, and then ultimately decided not to do it. But we had like a really, um, I mean, this is, feels so wild. It was like, you know, uh, eleven years ago now, because um, it was September two thousand eight. Uh, we just had like we did a ton of internal organizing and got a lot of met with like a lot of intense resistance. Mm. Yeah. Was there was Miss Major like uh, protesting like something in particular or just sort of the general I think just like, like, state of affairs around? I think the general state of affairs and people thinking you know I remember like one um, person who had like a lot of power in the space um, you know told me. Um, who's like a, you know, continues to be like a, whatever, like, well, you know, it's like a person who continues to have a lot of power in these spaces. Mm-hmm. Was like, you know, we, like, um, people just got out of prison. You can't expect them to, like, be all understanding about, like, um, trans issues. And I'm just like, it's the, the wildness of, like, how, 
you know, like it, the erasing trans people from this movement mm-hmm. of like trans people from being in prison. And it just it just felt so profound to me um, what people could imagine also like people being ready for, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, what did you think of Miss Major when you first met her? I was totally like starstruck. Um, you know, it was like, um, so what was this? You know, it was like 2006 or seven or something like that. Uh, I was just totally starstruck. She was just totally unapologetically crass and, um, you know, here for her community. Um, you know, all just like talking about sex and I don't know. I just was like, oh my god, who is this person? Um, really like unruly and and um, really protective of of people. Yeah. So I I only interacted with her a couple of times, but she's just like has like such like a wickedly like funny dark sense of humor. Yeah, dark sense of humor. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, I have to run to the bathroom. Yeah, yeah, I'll stop it. Are you recording? I think so. Yeah, there we go. Um, I wanted to ask you. Um, I'm not trying to quite sure how to formulate this as a question, yeah. but it's like you. It seems like you have had these kind of like trajectories in your life, where like you know, like a really strong like like sort of family influences around organizing around racial and economic justice right. and continuing that. Um, you know, in college, um, and also like. Um, uh, you know, coming into sort of like queer and trans community, but also having like that being a presence in your life in, in different ways. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and you're also describing the kind of like sort of tensions around like, you know, gender and sexuality, like right. in certain like racial justice, economic justice contexts. And I'm curious, like, was, was like QEJ sort of like a, th- like, I'm sort of curious about how you kind of like, like put, at least in your yeah. own thinking, like you sort of first kind of connect, like integrated right. those two things, which seemed yeah. like they were a little bit. I think bit QJ kind of was definitely the, the bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, QJ and transforming justice. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, and Miss Major. Um, but yeah, QJ was definitely kind of the way that those parts um, like came together and I was just so grateful that um, there was a space that existed where um, like poor people, people who had like lived, grown up or experienced poverty, people who had like a class analysis, who had economic justice analysis, um, were also like queer and trans and gender forming and non-binary and like um, saw those as like inextricably linked and um, we're also like there to have fun you know like I remember Jake Tool would just like come into the office every day like singing and performing and um, you know just like 
it was like a really joyful space for a while. Um, and it's like it's such a flashback. It, and you know, and it doesn't exist anymore, which is also like, you know, and talking about it in hindsight, I'm just like, oh, this moment in time, it was such a moment, you know, and like now there's like a different kind of thing that's happening, but um, yeah, that was such a like, that was such a particular moment. Um, like, organ like, you know, people were organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you came back, uh, when you started working as staff at QEJ, that would have been, I'm sorry, you said like, the 2007. 2007. Yeah. And what was, your, what was your position? When so you I was like the welfare warriors organizer. Um, and so, okay, so we, there was the speak out that happened in 2006. And then between that and the time that I had come back, um, people in the Welfare Warriors were starting to do like organizing around the issues that came up in the Speak Out. And so some of the issues were like, um, you know, like going to the welfare office and being turned away mm-hmm. because you were queer and trans, so just like um, facing um, a lot of violence and harassment, or the Social Security Administration or because um, a lot of our community is on disability, um, or like violence in the shelter uh, system. And so, um, you know, th- we were doing organizing around that. We were doing kind of uh, weekly Know Your Rights sessions um, where we would come have someone come in and talk about like how to get enrolled on, um, on food stamps or um, benefits, like how to win a fair hearing, how to um, advocate for yourself, um, you know, like what, just kind of all of this stuff um, that was really needed, all of this knowledge that was needed. And um, and then also we started this group called the um, Welfare Warriors Research Collaboration that um, it was like uh, we were doing research about our own experiences as a way to kind of document our lives um, and share it and have a like an impact on our community um, and so you know it was like also like research and documentation that didn't exist you know and afterwards it's kind of hasn't been really like replicated um, how were you research what kind of research were you doing yeah so we had a survey that we took um, throughout the city about people's experiences of um, being, um, you know, homeless or um, like in poverty or um, going through the shelter system or um, and experiences with like homophobia and transphobia and ableism and, and racism. And, um, and then we had focus groups and then we, um, had um, we did a uh, like documentary that's online um, that you can watch on YouTube it's called Taking Freedom Home um, and then the, we wrote this document that's also called Taking Freedom Home um, that is also online and um, it's like one of uh, one of the kind of early forms from that moment of like documenting our experiences like with all of these things. Mm. Yeah. 
what 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 was your role in the, um, making the documentary? I'm asking, obviously, since that yeah, yeah. ended up being something you continued totally. to work on. <laughs> um, so we were all like making it together. Uh, Kigendo was like the experienced filmmaker in the group, but we all took turn turns like filming it and um, talking about the direction that we wanted it to go and that kind of thing. And um, and what. Yeah, um, and talking about different, like, edits, and, um, I think we all got, like, co-producer credit, which is, like, looking back, I was like, oh, that's kind of funny, like, now being, like, a filmmaker, you know, like, because it was a thing that, um, we all, we all just made, you know, and I think Kagendo was just, like, a, I think there was, like, you know, there's, like, moments of frustrations in, in, in this work, so I think Kagendo was, like, you know, executive producer, director, producer, <laughs> editor, you know, musician, and then we got like listed as the co-producers. So <laughs> that, that was like very funny. Because um, at the time I was like, I was like, I don't know what a co-producer sounds great, but <laughs> I was like, um, oh, that was that was really funny. Uh, who else was on staff at QEJ when you were working there? So, um, uh, Jay, Tool, Joseph, um, Felipus, um, me, um, Ola came back, um, um, for, um, a, a bit to do fundraising, I think, um, and, um, um, Mary Guyton, um, was also doing fundraising, I think, um, Yeah. Um, and how how long were you uh, working at QEJ for? So I um, kind of off and on. So like I started as an intern in two thousand six, and then I came back in two thousand and seven, and I was working also full time at Creative Resistance at the time. So I had kind of two organizing jobs, which was I don't know how I did that. Looking back. And um, then I um, worked there up until 2010 when I left to join the Sylvia Vera Law Project. And then I came back, um, you know, like so Joseph left and then Kenyon um, Farrow became the executive director and um, uh, and we moved our office into this building that we like renamed um, the Miss Major J Tool Center for Social Justice, and um, it was like queer for economic justice, streetwise and safe, the Selby Rare Law Project, the Audrey Lord Project, and Fierce. Um, we were all in a building together, which was like really wonderful and vibrant. Um, Where's the building? It was on Twenty Fourth Street um, and Seventh Avenue, and. Uh, it was just really 
cool that we're like seeing each other every day you know we're all kind of really together um and so then I went upstairs to the Silverware Law Project but then I came back and I worked I think like a day a week which or like I got paid for a day a week but it worked more than that maybe uh which is like kind of classic to that world um in like 2011 and I was with them until they closed I think um but I forget what year QJ closed oh, I forget too um I was wondering I think that uh since you've you know worked at a, a few different like you know activist organizations in the city I feel like a lot of us kind of feel like you know the, the shuttering of QEJ has left yeah. a kind of ab- big absence yeah, in the kind absolutely. of political landscape yeah. uh, I wonder if you could like describe you know what if anything you think was sort of distinctive about how QEJ approached its work um yeah I mean that's a great question I think that um QEJ was really like nothing about us without us kind of um you know and so it really was like jay going into the shelter system and um organizing you know and like bringing people together and starting these groups all over the city and now i mean new york has just changed so dramatically um from when when QJ started and um, when the shelter work was happening but um, I don't think anyone else before then or after then or after that has done that work um, and that is really like you know that's un- like that, that's J Tool you know going and and um, making that happen and um, there was a lot of power in that and just creating space for people to be together you know and I think about it too it's like um, through the lens of like my own life it's like when I had the space to be with other trans people and um, like feel the beauty of that and uh, the power of it that part of my life like grew and flourished and when I didn't that part of my life was really folded in on itself and I think that is like you see that you know that's like a microcosm for what the power of like organizing and community building is um you know like we're in this moment of like deep austerity and like we're in just like things are really conservative and hard right now um, you know, and, and so the landscape, um, you know, it makes sense to me that QJ doesn't exist, right? Like, um, QJ really was, like, fundamentally challenging, um, you know, violence and systemic oppression on m- multiple different levels. Um, and so, yeah, and I think that the, like, um, the grief and loss about that is just so like nothing has come up in the wake of that um you know jay is still doing organizing work and it's beautiful but to have it held in a larger landscape 
as something that QJ was really doing. Why did QJ close? Um, I don't really know. I think part of it is just like funding, you know, like um, people like not, what is it? Foundations didn't really want to um, fund QEJ at, um, I think there's this thing that happens where like, um, you know, like this moment has seems like not the same anymore, right? Like uh, this like kind of organizing moment, but there's a kind of like a, there's like trends in um, philanthropy where like different groups or issues are like the hot issue and get a lot of funding and then that kind of like support goes away um, and it um, I think it just like it replicates like capitalism you know it's like what is the hot commodity right now um, and so for a while QJ um, was like popular in a particular kind of like small like um, w like subcultural way um, and then it just wasn't anymore mm. and um, yeah uh, what did you do when you went to work for SRLP? I was part of the movement building team with Gabriel Foster and so we um, kind of similar work to um, Course Fact Now Justice where we were doing like Know Your Rights and um, trainings and trying to um, really expand access to the um, the world of the Sylvia Vera Law Project and um, which I think like again you also introduced me to at the same time as, as QJ um, and so yeah, that was our work. It was like um, movement building. And then a lot of, um, like towards, you know, I was there for four years. And so towards the end of it, it was um, a lot of my like work was around the Medicaid campaign because at the time, New York specifically, I had a statute that specifically denied um, healthcare to trans and gender non-conforming people, like the same healthcare that if you were like a cis person, you could get access to, um, you were denied because you were trans or um, non-binary and gender non-conforming. And so, um, you know, it's like basic um, needs, a lot of like basic needs work. So access to housing, um, safety from policing and prisons, healthcare, welfare, that was like the work that I was doing. Mm. And why did you decide to move jobs from QEJ to SRLP? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> you can say whatever you want to about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, why did I decide to move jobs? I, um, I think, you know, for a few reasons. One was um, I liked that the Silver Law Project was collectively run. And so, like, um, decisions were made uh, not 
in a hierarchical way, but in a collective um, way and all by consensus. And, you know, like all of that has its own challenges and um, problems, but um, there was like a lot of um, intention around collective decision making and um, pushing back the idea that just because like someone <clears throat> went to school longer or had a law degree that meant that they like inherently knew better or were in a better place to like um, provide leadership on something when we know like just most often it's like that's not the case right people who are experiencing something um, are powerful and capable of like changing the world around those lines and so that was really compelling to me they also had just started um, the position of like movement building and um, I had just been working on a kind of campaign at Chris for Economic Justice around um, you know with SRLP around stopping discrimination at the welfare office and um, I had wrapped up the the like research work was wrapping up so we had just like finished our report and um, finished the film um, and I felt like a lot of the things that I had set out to do when I joined you know like 13 years ago now um, I had really kind of seen through um, and then I wanted new kinds of challenges um, and like ways to grow and also I, I think I also just like really wanted to be in like a trans-led organization that felt like really important to me um, at the time and what else oh and I got Fridays off <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so at the beginning it was just four days a week um, and uh, you know I was like really excited to work with Gabriel um, Gabriel Foster yeah Gabriel Foster um, yeah and Gabriel Arclos and you know all the people um, actually, so I have like so many more questions I want to ask you about your time with like SRO PRQ. We're gonna completely run out of time to talk about totally. what you've been up to recently. Yeah. Uh, but I want to like, is there anything else that you want to comment on before I ask you about your life after? Yeah, um, I think also with SRLP, you know, there was the work with um, transforming justice about like. Um, supporting and organizing with <clears throat> like people who are currently incarcerated and so um, that like I just wanted to be have that be more part of what I was doing mm. um, I think those were like kind of the main reasons um, but yeah, and then that work came with its own kind of challenges and, and growing moments. Mm, what was challenging about it? Um, it began a period in my life when just like many people I knew were um, dying and being killed and um, like transgenic people. And a lot of them um, 
like I knew through um, SRP. And so, you know, when I was at Chris Economic Justice, there were like a number of people I knew who were killed and who died. Um, but at um, SRP, it was just like a whole other level. And, um, and, and then what happened? Um, there was just like a lot of grief in the organization and loss and people process that in different ways and um, yeah. yeah um was uh, uh, did that shape your decision to, to leave nonprofit sector work yeah definitely I think I was like really really burnt out and um you know, we, like, on paper, won the Medicaid campaign, um, and, like, SRP had filed a class action lawsuit, and the governor repealed the regulation, and so I felt also in a similar way that I, like, um, you know, like, I had kind of, like, done what um, I had set out to do. It, it, it's like, at each of these places, I you know, did community building work and also campaign work. And so, like, at Critical Resistance, we did a, um, another kind of, like, successful campaign about stopping um, this jail from being built in the South Bronx that was, like, uh, kind of, like, quote-unquote, like, gender-responsive prison or jail that was, like, environmentally friendly. It was just, like, the, the city and the state always tries to find a way to, like, sell you the thing that you don't need that is actually part of like hurting you but in a in a way that's like trending so like you know people were saying we need to close Rikers because the conditions for um, people who are pregnant and like uh, have kids on Rikers are horrible like health conditions are horrible and the city came back and was like well our plan is we're gonna build a beautiful pristine um, you know like jail for uh, people who get pregnant and, um, you know, and babies. And then, you know, um, you know, we were like, Rikers needs to end because, um, you know, the, it's impossible for families to visit their loved ones. And, you know, the state came back and was like, uh, you know, like, we're going to build a jail that's like incredibly accessible to the community and, um, you know, like that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, like, it was a successful campaign, and it was really beautiful, and, um, and, um, but yeah, I think that, um, all of these, it, like, campaign organizing is so exhausting, and really, like, can really burn you out, and also, just, like, the levels of loss that I was navigating, um, were so intense at SLP, and I think um, there was not really a culture of like um, dealing or with uh, with loss and grief, you know. Um, so yeah, that I was just like I really need to do something that feeds me, um, and for me at the time it was like art making um and like filmmaking and like trying to figure out a way how to do that and like going into 
archives with you. It's wild. It's like every one of these things, it's like, and with you. you know? yeah, like, we're only doing this interview, so I can get props. <laughs> yeah, <that. laughs> um, yeah. Um, I remember you sending me those photos in like 2009 of the Queen's Liberation Front and um, then the Diane Davies uh, photos came out like later, like a few months later um, at the New York Public Library and um, I started doing like all this collage work um, and painting like with Marsha's images and, um, and that like set me up to be like I really want to like make a film about this. Had you made art before? Yeah, um, I did the so the documentary at QJ felt like making art, and we had like art days at QJ, um, but I wasn't like at all in a kind of art world context in any way, and um, I was in high school. I was doing um, a lot of photography and. Um, in the early 90s, I was also doing a lot of photography, like, um, and I got, like, third place in some, like, national photography competition in 1993, and I was, like, really, I thought it was, like, my medium, and, um, I think it kind of, um, it was also something I was really intimidated to be a part of, because, um, when I was uh, around, like, the kind of, um, like political analysis or even if it wasn't about analysis like um, the like intentions and values um, that were present in community building and organizing um, with like QJ or critical assistance or the Silver Rare Law Project or Transforming Justice were just like not at all present in the kind of art world even um, around like queer and trans people who were making art and it felt really off-putting and alienating um, and kind of scary like I could um, I was like and then my friend was like and it made me really angry you know and then my um, friend was like oh you know like a lot of times when we're angry about something it's like what we want to do you know if like if you're angry about other people making art then Sometimes, like, that means, like, you want to make art, you know, and so I think that, like, led me to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you have a sense, like, because uh, I remember we, like, went to the Lesbian History Archives and, and stuff uh, yeah. around, around that time. Um, so you were, you know, getting in, interested in art making and uh, film and also um, doing research and, you know, looking at archives. Right. And, like, did you have a, a sense initially that those two things were connected? Um... Did I have a sense they were connected? Um, not really. I think that for a while I was like, I had an idea that I was gonna be a writer or something like that. You know, like I was like, um, I thought like writing things for my community. There was a lot of blogs going on. You know, this is like everyone had a blog. I was I was reading Kenyon Farrow's <laughs> blog all the time and. Um, this is like 2006 and 5 and 7 like everyone had a blog and I was like oh like blogs are like the thing do you remember this moment it was so wild yeah. blogs the moment. blog years yeah yeah the blog years <laughs> and so I thought oh like I'm, I want to have a blog and um, even that name sounds so kind of like <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I was just like, yeah, I wanted to write for like my community and um, share the things that I want that you know, but I I think I knew that I wanted to make film. Like, um, I knew that there was something specific to um, the like texture of um, art that was so compelling to me. Um, like I remember going to, um, my mom was a student when I was really young at the um, um, museum school, um, School of Museum Fine Arts in, in Boston. And I remember like on sick days or days when I was in like preschool, just going with her to classes and really, um, like the two things that stick out were like, or there were like three maybe. One was um, the smell of oil paints and that <clears throat> just feeling so, um, like my body kind of really responding to the smell of, of that. And another was um, everyone was like kind of a freak and like people had like different color hair and amazing haircuts and I think looking back, it's like, oh, there, these are a lot, a lot of like, these are just like art school kids, you know, like now I have like a, but at the time I was like, wow, this is like, what world am I in? And then, um, like I, I felt like I got to be like really expressive. And then she was like in this life drawing class and there was just like a naked person who she was drawing. And I was like so blown away by it. like like you go to school to like draw naked people and that was like amazing to me um, as a kid. And <laughs> I don't know, I can, like, I can only imagine like what other, how I was received at the time. I don't know, that must have been really strange for <laughs> but, um But it felt really powerful. So there's something about like making art and as a kid I was making art a lot. Um, when my mom was in art school, and um, it was just like this very brief moment in my life um, where we would like make art projects, you know, like paper, we did like a ton of paper mache everything was paper mache, this and that, and um, masks and sculptures and like things that you got inside with like chicken wire, and um, often that was like part of the theater group that David did. Um, and it felt so alive. It felt really, really amazing. And then, um, and then kind of life just like got very, um, constricted. Like, um, then she went, like she became a union organizer again. And shortly after that, my, um, dad went to prison and, um, like the Clinton crime bills were happening and funding for, uh, and like the Welfare Act and um, funding for like mental health care was like really slashed and I just remember feeling the uh, effects in my community and, and how that was kind of also bound up with art making to me. Um, yeah. And what were you doing to like make ends meet initially when you left QEJ? Um, so when was that? Um, which time? 
Like when you sort of like left the nonprofit sector working. Oh with, yeah. The, during the blog years. During the blog years, totally. Uh, I was doing a lot of stuff. I was doing um, sex work. I was doing. Um, uh, I was doing um, like random Craigslist jobs. I was doing. Um, I was like getting money from friends. Um, I was. Um, oh, I worked at the door. I had a short-lived job at the door. What's the door? The door is a drop-in center um, for like everybody who was a young person, but specifically had um, these um, programs for LGBT people, and. Um, I was working with this person, Reed um, Christian, who I met through um, Chris for Economic Justice, and um, I was an outreach worker, so we were working on the pier um, and doing outreach for the door, and we were just, we were, our hours were like, um, I think it started at 10 and ended at 4 or something like that, or 2, it was like, it was like an overnight kind of job, and um, I was doing that, and then I had like also a short-lived job at the New Press, which was horrible. And um, I don't know if they still exist. I'm, I'm sure they do good stuff now, but that was all. That was all. <laughs> it was a very bad job. I had like a really horrible boss, and um, I'm sure it's like a great person now. But <laughs> and, um, I did like publicity for them. I don't know. It was a really hard time in my life. Um, it was like, I was really, really struggling. And um, I just, like, I remember being hungry, like literal hungry, like all the fucking time. And, um, and like being at McDonald's a lot. And... Um, like growing up my dad worked at McDonald's and I felt this kind of like deep familiarity so just like go there all the time um, and I lived with um, uh, my friend Nell and this person Andre Lancaster who died um, recently and um, Andre was a playwright and um, you know, an artist and was like really unapologetic about how that was different than like activism and organizing. And um, we like didn't really get along, um, but I really cared about him a lot. And, um, and then he like invited um, us to not live with him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> And so, and I, you know, like part of that, I think too, was like I was having a really hard time paying the rent, um, and I was like always late with the rent, and um, yeah, it was just really, it was a really hard moment. Um, yeah. Was the next film you started working on Mudbound? Yeah. So um, when. Um, I left SRLP, I was working on this film, Sasha Warsaw, the that turned into Happy Birthday, Marsha. 
and then we shot in uh, the film in 2015, um, and then we edited, and um, then I went down to um, New Orleans to work for D. Reese um, on Mudbound. Yeah, I, I, for some reason, I thought Mudbound came before you shot Happy Birthday, Marshall. But I'm so we sh- well, we split it up. It's like so we. You're right. It uh, it both came before and after. So we shot in 2015, and then we finished shooting 2016. So in between, I went to Mudbound, and Mudbound working for D was the kind of th- was the thing that allowed me to realize like, oh, I can do this. Like I can we like you know the film wasn't done to how we wanted it to be like it was our very first time making a narrative film we had a um, really amazing cast and some amazing crew and then there were some people who because of our like inexperience well like we just didn't know um, you know it's just like um, and so there were a lot of like production challenges um, and um, and so we like shot we like shot like half the film or maybe like three quarters and then um you know there were just like so many edits of Happy Birthday Marsha like there was one there's there's like a 40 minute version you know there's just like a bunch of scenes that don't exist that are really beautiful in this current version um there is a version with like a laugh track that is amazing. Um, did you see that one? Yeah. yeah. Why did you decide to put in the laugh track and then take it out? I so the it was the um, it was a really kind of wonderful I- idea from um, the, our editor to kind of solve some of the problems that we were having and also to put it in a, a like genre of like seventies sitcom. And we had watched this, like, amazing kind of Richard Pryor show clip um, where Richard Pryor is, like, impersonating Little Richard, and there's, like, an interruption in it uh, where this person talks about they're, like, having a queer relationship. And it was, like, in the 70s, and it was wild, and it was on TV. And um, then, you know, it was at a time also when we were, like, wanting it to be its own TV show. Um but also a commentary on, like, TV. And um, then I got really uncomfortable with the laughter because it was also, it wasn't, we didn't write it that way. Um, so it was kind of, some, at different moments, like a little kind of, it felt like um, really experimental in this re- beautiful ways, but also um, pretty challenging in some other ways. And so what happened? Also, I just felt like, you know, laughter is such a thing. Like, trans people are just, like, always being laughed at, you know? And so then I was talking to um, Gabriel Foster, who, like, really hated the laugh track. Or just felt, like, really concerned about it, you know? And was like, I wonder... And, you know, so we were just having a lot of conversation about, like, what it would mean for the first time, like, Marsha to be on stage, for her to be, like, constantly being laughed at. And she was kind of in her lifetime constantly being laughed at. So there was, it's not a kind of black or white, binary, good or bad thing. It just was something that I um, started to get really uncomfortable with. And, you know, I, I have this thing where I always, you know, like one of the ways that I'm like 
crazy or whatever, it's like I always think people are laughing at me. You know, like I walk down the street and I just like will assume that everybody's laughing at me. And um, I'll always think that people around me are laughing. And, um, and so it made me kind of in this really healing and beautiful way kind of confront the power of laughter and, and feel through that and and the beauty of laughter and then we like inverted the laughter at the end and it was really cool but also um I think because it wasn't like written and built for that and because it was the first time that Marsha was going to be seen on um on screen I came to feel that I wanted it to the film to exist without um without that element and how did the um, the idea for the film itself originally come to be? So it came, you know, like, from um, going through those archives, like, and um, reading, um, like, the star statement, um, and watching that footage at the Her Story archives of like Sylvia being booed off stage and really wanting kind of the world to um, see the power and the pain and the like transformative um, work of, of these people. And um, so it started off as like an idea of like doing a documentary and then the whole um, like David France thing happened and Sasha and I felt like we needed to um, like pivot and like make a um something that was like creative and maybe had non um narrative elements into it but um yeah and that was partly a consideration about like like not really being able to compete with a documentary yeah it was like a huge kind of netflix yeah I'm curious, you know, I'm asking obviously a kind of self-interested question here, yeah. where you sort of describe the kind of, like, the sort of, like, sensory experience and, like, like, like art-making, you know, yeah. spaces and cultures and stuff. Um, I'm curious, like, how it felt to when you first started looking at archival documents. It felt really cool. Um, it, it felt really similar, you know? Um, it felt like I was, like, holding... It felt amazing. Like, I was, like, holding a piece of paper that um, you know, like, like Sylvia had typed on, or I remember, um, Randy Wicker gave me, like, this huge beer mug that was Sylvia's that she left at, um, Randy's apartment when she stopped drinking, and, um, like, you know, I, and I was like, oh, these, these things are, like, um, the, the power in them, you know, just, like, it feels really amazing, um, and also really painful and to see like how much has changed but how much hasn't you know and like the same issues are um, are happening you know every day um, and so that to me was really interesting and what time. drew you to Marsha P. Johnson in particular? Um, you know at the time Marsha's like kind of work and legacy was not at all like it is today you like there wasn't you know I remember trying to like google Marshall and there just wasn't anything online you know like there wasn't what exists now and um, I think that I was really interested in how she was a performer 
uh, an artist <clears throat> and an activist and um, and also like a, like beautifully unruly like these stories of her um, walking naked down Christopher Street just and or also like just like throwing clothes into the Hudson River or um, that just seemed like a freak leak, you know? Like, I was, like, really into that, you know? And I think that, to me, um, also because her story wasn't out there like it is now, it felt important to... felt really like I was drawn to it, and also I wanted to share it. Yeah. And... Uh, so you, Sasha started to work on Happy Birthday, Marsha. Like, what was that like, sort of working on an initial film? Because you haven't had like formal film right. training. Yeah, no um, formal film training. Uh, what was that like, sort of the process of figuring out how to put together a, a, a narrative short? Um, it was, you know, it was. Um, I'm gonna pee again. Actually, yeah, actually, I'm sorry. process was like work, uh, writing and figuring out happy yeah. birthday Marsha so um, you know it was challenging because the whole backdrop of why we needed to stop doing documentary but it was also really liberating so um, I when I left SRLP I applied to a job to be on a writer for transparent that I like um you know, it was like a finalist for, and part of the process of the job was um, this kind of weird, like, real world trans version where, like, we all lived in a house, all the finalists lived in a house together, and um, and we had to, like, write a script together with um, Jill Soloway. And, Sounds amazing. Yeah. And, and Amazon paid for it all and optioned the script that we wrote together. And it was about, it was called like, I hope someday someone makes this because it was a really interesting idea. So we wrote a pilot and it was like called um, The House That Ladies Snow. And it was about like a, um, like a ghost um, trans woman who like, ran a brothel, and, um, like, all these, like, younger trans people ended up living in this big house, um, that, like, she was a ghost in, and (laughs) it was, um, I don't know, it was really interesting, and had all the kind of problems that you can imagine that whole thing would have. Um, and, you know, it was kind of similar to, um, work for D at Mudbound, that experience, even though I didn't get the job, like, um, I was like, oh, um, I can, I can do this, you know, like, there are people who don't have, whatever, like, I, I felt like I was like, oh, you know, like, this experience lets me, uh, like it gave me confidence to start like writing a script um and so I remember um you know um being working on the the um 
script uh, with these people and, and Jill Soloway and um, it was like um, having these conversations about you know um, like finding out that we like really are gonna have to pivot to um, or deciding together or just realizing the landscape in which we were making a film and like other people's film was gonna happen um, about Marsha and feeling like you know what like this is can be like a real big opportunity to um, to like to write our own story of Marsha um, because so much of her life has really been erased and so um, you know it felt really hard because I didn't go to film school like I applied to film school and I got rejected and, um, but it felt um, also really amazing um, and kind of liberating um, and so then I remember um, you know, we like fundraised and then we like had a shoot and I remember the first night, um, it was like, uh, May 2015 and, um, like the last day of May or something like that. And Sasha and I, we did like a ritual together. Um, and then we started filming and then I remember feeling like this is like the only job that I ever want to do. When I was like looking at the monitor and directing, I was felt like oh my god it was so wild that it took me so long to um to like find out that this is exactly what I want to be doing and it felt like so many things were coming together um with like set decoration design with the writing with the casting with the costumes with, um, you know, like, Arthur Jaffa was the DP, and um, it just felt, like, so amazing, like, how things were coming together. And, um, and also, like, really just, like, learning on the job. And, yeah, it just, it felt um, both incredibly challenging and really, like, something, I was like, oh, wow, like, I really want to be doing this. What ritual did you do with Sasha before you started shooting? We did um, um, like a, like put flowers into the Hudson River um, for Marsha and Sylvia, and um, like set up an altar, and yeah. I wanted to ask um, something that a lot of people have commented on is that your your films like look really good, like they're beautiful, yeah. and you've also commented on sort of like the role of kind of like style and glamour right. um, uh, in your work, um, which is true of Happy Birthday, Marsha. Also, I, I'm curious, like, I, what was like the aesthetic you were like, like what aesthetic were you trying to create right. with the film? Um, that's a great question. You know, I think it it varied at different moments, and I think it was like. Um, you know, I think part of it was um, kind of like 70s glamour moment. Um, part of it was these like, um, you know, Salacia and um, different edits and Happy Birthday Marsha. The kind of um, super, separate, super saturation is like um, something that I use um, 
kind of draw attention to um, how art isn't like a neutral thing and um, the power behind glamour and the depth of superficiality, you know, like, um, I think that for a really long time, um, when I was organizing, like, superficiality, glamour, the surface work was written off as, like, something that's not important, you know, and then it was, like, a slow kind of learning for me about, actually, these things are, like, deeply important, um, and um, can be even more like deep than the kinds of politics that um, other people are talking about, you know. And then I think then that's when I started to like really find the power of like um, makeup and just like a like fashion and um, the history of like um, fashion policing, you know, like the being written into Stonewall, you know, and like um, part of it is, you know, like uh, fashion isn't a light thing, you know, it's like fashion is something that is um, criminalized, mm -hmm. you know, like people's fashion risks and fashion expression and um, fashion self-determination or collective indeterminacy is like deeply criminalized and policed. Mm -hmm. um, and to me that is a way that um, like it becomes erased how surface work is actually really powerful you know um, and so yeah I think that's like a really important part of the work that I'm doing now. Did you have a particularly uh, like glamour uh, style role models that influenced you? Yeah um for for Happy Birthday Marsha, for Happy Birthday Marsha, really like a lot of it just came from just looking at photos of Marsha and being like, wow, this is amazing. And you know, like she, I think, had different style moments too. It's like her style in the hot peaches was one. Her style of like the fur coat at the NYU direct actions was another. You know, it's like her style of, you know, she played the Queen of Hearts. Um, there was a, in the, in the 70s, kind of the same time that the uh, Sylvia had stormed stage, Marsha was doing these Hot Peaches plays, and how they would be, um, so Jimmy Camicia was the director of the Hot Peaches, and, um, Jimmy Kamich is in Happy Birthday, Marsha, and was Marsha's, like, director, and so it was really amazing to, to work with Jimmy, and he was in um, the live, um, so we did a, like, a, a live performance of Happy Birthday, Marsha at the kitchen, and he was in it, and um, did you come to that? I have to send you a link, it was really amazing, and, um, you know, he has this poem from Marsha, but anyway, so he organized, uh, it felt kind of, like, similar to, like, David Farwell where he um, organized a um, play that went up and down Christopher Street. It was like Alice in Wonderland on, 
Christopher Street. And it would incorporate, like, the, um, the characters, the everyday people who were on Christopher Street into the actual play. And so, like, scene, you know, one would happen, um, at the, like, cigar place, you know, and then it would end, like, maybe at the pier. And so, I always thought, you know, if I did a feature-length version of, like, a Marsha film, that that would be, like, an aspect. Um, just because her fashion, you know, it was, like, ever-changing and really, um, really amazing. I also, I kind of have to ask, related to Glamour, I was wondering if you could comment a little bit about the role of enchantment in your... Yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, that, I remember going to see um, Justin and Vivian Bond at the kitchen in 2011, um, and we did a play about, like, glamour and enchantment, and, like, having to lose your glamour in order, like, there's a character who had to lose the glamour in order to go to the underworld to, like, go on a journey and then come back up. And all of the, like, you had to, like, lose your shoes and all of these, um, like, kind of superficial, glamorous aspects had a profound magic to them. And, um, and they were, like, stripped away from the character. Um, and that, to me, is really about, it is what is, like, part of, there's, like, a serious magic, um, in movie magic, you know, and so the, like, medium itself, to me, feels, um, like it is a portal, and it's working in that way. Um, and then also the objects that appear within them are like very um, intentional in that way. What's the um, well? Do you think that queer and trans uh, subjects in your work have a particular kind of relationship to glamour and enchantment? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, definitely. Um. I mean, Marsha and the ways that we talked about. I think the, like, um, the, in Atlantic Sea of Bones, Fatima's character, um, you know, acquires more glamour the more that she hangs around from being, like, dug up from the underworld. Um, and that was, like, very much intentional. Um, Egypt has a kind of similar like journey in that as she like moves from a place of like loss to a place of like self-actualization and kind of dealing with um, like her loss uh, and grief and, and power and um, and then Mary Jones you know, the story, have you seen Salacia? Mm-hmm. So the piece that, uh, so the Brooklyn Museum and Highline commissioned me to do this film about Mary Jones. And um, 
Um, just went into the Brooklyn Museum's permanent collection, which feels like really cool. And um, it's about this Mary Jones, who was like a trans figure in the 1800s. And, um, you know, it was wild. I like, during the process of like researching about her, um, Che, my sibling, um, found like the actual court transcript between Mary Jones and the court officer. Have you read that? It's mm-hmm. wild. No. It is so, it is just, and it's all in like hard to read cursive. Um, and from 1836 and it's just as like um, so anyway so it, the, the films like all of them I do a lot of kind of um, part of my writing process is like a lot of research and then um, so for the latest one kind of like change the character Mary into um, like uh, you know I wanted to establish it within the genre of like black fantasy and specifically stories like the um, that I grew up on like the people could fly um, and like folklore and fantasy of um, about like fleeing um, slavery and like fugitivity and so Mary is, becomes like a witch in the um, in the film and like does magic and fights you know um, with magic and does these kind of rituals to um, like save Seneca Village and um, there's like a kind of one edit is called Salation that's at the um, Brooklyn Museum it's a looping film and then there's like a longer more narrative um, cut called Mary of Belfame that's gonna um, that we're finishing right now yeah. And can you also talk a little bit more about um, uh, just like w- the pr- process for Atlantic as a Sea of Bones yeah. and what that was like? So for Atlantic Sea of Bones, a lot of that came from my conversations with, um, so Egypt Labeja was the coordinator of trans justice at the Audre Lord Project when I was working at um, Chris for Economic Justice and then the Silver Bear Law Project. And... Um, we became friends because uh, she was part of the uh, Welfare Warriors and um, for a while. And, um, you know, we, I remember one day she came into the office um, with this like coffee table book of photos of the meatpacking district in the 90s. And she was kind of turning the pages and talking about how, um, just like, you know, every person that was in the book was um, dead. And we were kind of talking about what it felt like to be um, alive when other people who you knew and loved aren't anymore. And then she was talking about also what it felt like to be like instrumentalized by these um, photographers because no one asked for her permission to be in like a coffee table book and so to me and her like the conversation a lot of it became about like um, how those are deeply entangled with each other uh, being instrumentalized and being in a community where you know you're navigating tremendous loss 
um, and death all the time. And so, um, you know, and at the same time um, that those conversations were happening, I was watching uh, Alexis Paul and Gums, um, like, read uh, Lucille Clifton's Atlantica's Sea of Bones poem. Um, and um, Alexis had, like, a reading of it on Vimeo. And just that poem has... Um, really like stuck with me about like the haunting and the haunts of a landscape um and the violence that is a part of it well after it's considered like um you know a moment has ended so whether it's like slavery and the um or like the hiv criminalization you know just like all of these things or the policing of the pier um like, none of these things are over. Um, they're all declared over, and the afterlife of them continue to, like, haunt, um, you know, all of the interactions that we have. And so it was just kind of, um, like, a, it was just, and then I got commissioned by Visual Aids to make a film. Um, and so, yeah. Right. Can you a little bit about water in Atlantic as a same poem? Yeah, I think water and all of my work is um, really important to me. Um, you know, I think a, a lot of times, you, water in many different ways. So, like, water as its connection to the transatlantic slave trade. Water as, um, you know, just like a place that New York is like a collection of islands um, that we're hanging out on. And I think that, to me... Um, you know, as like the climate collapse happens, like I think we're gonna become more and more acutely aware about how New York is like a collection of islands, but I think there's a lot that, a um, lot built into like people not having the experience of how we're surrounded by water and um, like, the history of like colonization uh, of, of this land. And so, um, to me, like, water is, like, really important. Also, I'm a cancer, and there's, like, an astrological uh, component to the work as well. And, um, like, water as a symbol for intuition and emotions and being tied to the moon. And, um, and like, Neptune, who Marsha had, like, a relationship with them. And, yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have a lot more questions about it. Uh, your, your recent work, but I also don't want to be mindful of time. Oh yeah, um, should check the time. Um, well, what's what's the reception of um? Was it uh, what's the reception of Happy Birthday, Marsha, been like for you? Um, you know, it has been um really amazing. I think that I feel really lucky that um people were so responsive to, um, <coughs> you know, it's like uh, many, many, many filmmakers or artists or just people loving create something that um, they want a lot of people to experience, but that doesn't happen, you know? <coughs> and so, um, 
I think I'm nearing my end of my talking. Um, the reception's been um, really powerful. I think, you know, um, what, it's like Marsha's um, story can't be undone. It's, you know, it's like, um, there's no way that you can't like um, Google about Marsha anymore and have nothing come up you know I think that's just so fucking cool and um, you know her story is out there and um, it just feels amazing I was wondering if you could um, also also talk a bit about like um, uh, because like you've like in in your like writing um, you know have critical positions on visibility right. you know for instance yeah. and like you know you were an editor for the trapdoor anthology right. which is mainly a kind of critique of trans visibility totally. um and you've also like um played an important hand in a kind of visibility boom right. around these historical figures yeah. um and you are now yourself a visible public figure in a, a trans totally. kind of quite conjuncture yeah. and i was wondering if you could comment a little bit what what that sort of what it's been like sort of living in that you know contradiction as it were or yeah. what's like been navigating sort of like having a role in a, right. a moment of visibility while also like having critiques of that I think it's all about you know my friend Tina Zavistanos talks about double dutch you know it's like um how it's like you have to in order for double dutch to like be the kind of beautiful dance that it is it's like you have to have one foot in, one foot out. It, it's like this kind of beautiful movement. Um, and I think the thing about, for me, um, I used to think that, like, when I first started organizing, I used to talk about how, like, queer and trans people of color were being targeted by the police and prisons. And then I remember my friend, mentor, uh, Kai Lumumba Barrow was like, we need to start, stop talking about our community as objects. We need to start talking about us as subjects. So instead of saying we're targeted, we should talk about what we're doing, not what the state is doing. And that was a profound shift to me, and kind of, um, you know, had started thinking about like the power of my grammar and how we're understanding ourselves and uh, how we talk about ourselves and how that matters, and how we're like um, objectifying ourselves, and uh, this is what I was thinking about at the time, and how. You know, it's important for us to be subjects, you know, to be verbing, um, talking about what we're doing rather than what's being done to us. And I think then, so I did that for a long time. And then, you know, um, I would kind of loosely put that in the parameter of like being a, a somebody, you know, like a, an object is a nobody and a subject in the sentence is a somebody. Somebody's do things, objects have things done to them. 
And then I started to think about how actually it's important to be able to move back and forth between being a subject and being an object. Like you don't always want to be verbing. Sometimes you want to be receiving. You don't always want to be the person doing the thing. And sometimes it's really important to not be. Sometimes it's really important to be invisible. And so then I spent a lot of time thinking about the, the beauty of the nobody and the life of the nobody. Um, and um, me and Tina and Cyrus um, Dunham, we wrote, a, I gave a commencement speech at Hampshire about the um, beauty of the nobody. Um, but also the importance, which could e can easily be like translated into uh, questions around visibility, right? Um, and questions about the afterlife of slavery and objects that do and can resist and the beauty of being objectified. And um, to me, I think it's like really important to just pose and keep being in question and in study around these um, issues. So for example, like when is visibility um, and like representation a trap? You know, like when does it seek to only uh, further the like profit margin of like um, a television studio? And when at the same time can that also be something that like some people get something out of? Um, when is it really important for our survival to not be visible? Um, when do we want to be able to be objectified? Um, when is it important to be verbing? And I think that to me it's really important um, just be asking these questions and asking about the aim of visibility and representation because for a really long time like um, you know um, people were just talking about how important those things were without um, like questioning like what are we who are we being visible to to what aim and what like apparatus are we gaining representation in like do we really want to be um, gaining more power in an institution that's not here for us you know like um, so to me those are really important questions and then um, yeah when is it like important to do the double dutch or move do one thing over here and another thing over here and um, Because it strikes me that, like, it, like in some ways, in in your work, like visibility, like, is like, it's a source of pleasure, right? You know? yeah. um, not so much, yeah. you know, like re even representation per se, right. you know, in the sense of it being accurate or not, yeah. or whatever. That it's partly like um, that the visual can just be a, a yeah, you know, a, a mode of having happen and, and uh, yeah, pleasure. And like pleasure can be our medicine, you know, mm -hmm. like in these moments when uh, we're dealing with so much. You know, like pleasure and visibility can be really medicinal. Yeah. Um, 
I want to, um, again, like, wrap this up before we both completely totally. run out of steam. Um, and so I, could, I can move towards wrapping this up, but I was wondering if, yeah. if I wanted to give you an opportunity to comment on other uh, aspects of your, your recent work that we haven't had a chance to talk about. No, I think we're getting to it. What are you working on now? Um, so right now I am working on a cut of the like longer form of the Mary Joan Seneca Village film. Um, working on like a future script about um, these characters and um, working on a like a art show that'll maybe be like more um, like using sculpture um, that'll happen in like the early spring. Um. What kind of, I guess, I guess this will be my, my final question for now is, um, actually no, this will be my penultimate question. Um, I, I'm curious, I, I haven't asked specifically about this, I don't think, but uh, you know, the, like, the, the big, 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 like, sort of theme across, like, all, like, your right. work is, like, like, historicity and memory, you know? Um, and I'm curious, I just, yeah, I just, I just want to ask you to comment on, like, what, like, what is it that you, that you think film? Like, like, I guess, like, how you see this sort of relationship between, like, film as a medium and, right. like, historicity and, like, what you try to use film to do yeah. um, with memory in the past. Well, I mean, I just, I think that, like, um, like, film can be really Neptunian. It can be, um, uh, it can be transporting. It can be um, enchanting like the actual movie magic, you know, it like takes so much. The actual movie magic in part is the magic of erasing how much labor it takes to have that kind of experience, you know? And like the number of people who um, work on creating um, what you see in the frame. You know, it's like it was wild to experience and like also how long those days are and just like what that does on to you um the like in inherent ableism of the of the work um it's like it is a real kind of magic to create something in a frame you know and um and also there is uh such there can be you know we can find i can find such pleasure in that reflection. Um, I can't go around New York City anymore without experiencing the 60s and early 70s because I made film about those moments, you know, like in, like, you know, in front of Stonewall on Gay Street, um, there's something truly transporting about that experience. Similarly, like, um, to, like, the 90s in Egypt, and, you know, I can't look at, like, what is going on with, um, Hudson Yards, or the Whitney and 
Christopher C. Pierce without seeing what came before. And with the Seneca Village film and Mary Jones film, it's like impossible to not feel what is buried beneath Central Park. You know, like there's literal um, grave sites still in um, what is now Central Park, you know, from Seneca Village, because that whole community was just like raised. And, um, you know, I can't like walk around Green Street without like looking for where Mary lived and like, um, and feeling those and being attuned to it. In the company of ghosts. Yeah, exactly. Um, this is my last question. Um, what do you want people to take away from your work? Um, I think that um, I want those of us who've like never experienced um, getting to see ourselves in, um, you know, in a, a like receiving pleasure, filled with glamour, having moments of joy, navigating violence, like being with each other, like um, I want to provide that kind of reflection and I want it to be pretty unruly to like what um, is like, you know, the moral of the state and I wanted to ask questions about, like, when is it fun to be um, objectified? When is it, like, powerful to be the subject of a sentence? Um, how do we work towards, like, having and creating moments where we self-determine, like, where we get to do and how we fall in that? Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, well, Charlie, thank you so much for your time. Thank really you. Appreciate it. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Um, really, thank you. That yeah, was that was so, so cool. Thank you so much. Um,